Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, and Luke 7, 11 through 23. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God had visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered to them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that you would settle our hearts and our minds. Um, this is a, a big chunk of scripture today. This is, at, at first off, just exciting and, and in a way feels so different from where we are today in the world. It just kind of feels like a story from way long ago. But God, you are real. You are here with us. You are in our hearts. Lord, you are present in this room. And I just pray that you would speak through Alan. I pray that you would calm our hearts to listen to what you have for us today, God. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm privileged to introduce uh, to you Shane Rosenthal and his wife Heidi. They're with us today. 
I first met Shane uh, in Florida, um, and I knew of him before I ever had met him. And so it was strange in the fact that uh, when my wife met his wife, uh, they just kind of clicked because they had a common denominator that brought us even closer together. And when I found that he was has family in Johnson City, uh, that he may be in this area, I was delighted to see that he had time to come speak to us. Um, Shane, of course, is a graduate of Cal State in California uh, with a uh, degree there, and he also went to Westminster Seminary with a Master of Arts degree there as he studied. Uh, he, um, he co-founded, if you've never heard of the White Horse Inn, he's the co-founder of the White Horse Inn. He also produced the White Horse Inn, and also was a host for the White Horse Inn. I will encourage you, as I've had before, if you've not listened to the White Horse Inn, please do. It's uh, been a big part of my life. Uh, they've helped me tremendously with so many things. He now has uh, left them after 32 years in that ministry. You don't even look that old in some ways. So uh, anyway, Mike Horton and he uh, began that ministry and uh, I'm sure they was disappointed, but he has launched a new one called the humble skeptic and uh, you'll find out about that from me um, it is a wonderful ministry that is so needed in America with so much diversion and so much rhetoric and just calling each other names that he has began the humble skeptic and we need to know what we believe and why we believe what we believe so um, he has his family with him today out North Carolina South Carolina and Johnson City right uh, a large family there. Um, I like this guy. He is a different kind of a fella, uh, and that just delights me. Um, but anyway, what a joy it is to have him. I, I, I'm so grateful he's here today and that the fact that Alan has agreed to let him be here and speak to us. So he's going to talk to us about faith. So at this time, I'd like you to welcome uh, Shane Rosenthal. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. So we have an opportunity to open up God's Word as we'll be focusing mostly this morning on John, uh, sorry, on Luke chapter 7. And faith is close to what we're talking about. It's actually the opposite. We're talking about doubt. It's related because sometimes in our faith we struggle with what we should believe and whether or not the faith is true. What's the foundation of our faith? And this, the, the text in Luke 7 is a very interesting scene because John the Baptist, who you think has a lot, should have a lot of faith, has this moment of doubt. In fact, you might even call it a crisis of faith. You know, not too many scenes earlier in Luke's gospel, or was it John's gospel? I think it's John's gospel. Maybe he does it in Luke's gospel as well. He's, he's standing by the Jordan River pointing to this Jesus saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's some confidence there. And yet here in our text this morning, he's asking the question, are you really the one? You know, on that, the day by the Jordan River, he's, he's basically fulfilling this role as a prophet. He was, it was a prophetic announcement. Jesus was being identified as Israel's true Messiah. He was the one to fulfill the great promise made to Genesis, made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, that he would redeem Israel from all her sins. And in Matthew 11, Jesus said of John that among those born of women, there has arisen none other that's greater than John the Baptist. He's the best of all the prophets. 
So in a sense, we could say, here's the best that humanity has to offer. And yet here, we find this man expressing doubt. But how can that be? Was, it, was John the Baptist an inspired prophet or not? And if, he, and if he was an inspired prophet, how can he doubt like we find him doubting in this text? Well, that's what, I, what I'd like us to consider this morning. So if you're anything like me, you have yourself had moments of doubt. John Calvin, one point in his uh, writing says that all of us are partly unbelievers until we die. All of us are sort of like that man in Mark 6 or Mark 9, I think, who says, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. So if you think about it, the passage in Luke 7 can actually be a source of comfort for all of us in our moments of doubt. Apart from Jesus himself, John the Baptist is the greatest prophet who ever lived, and yet even he had doubts. In fact, here in Luke 7, he he seems to be having trouble believing the message of his own sermon. So before we unpack this message or this passage this morning, I'd like to first clear away a few misconceptions. The first misconception, I think, that we should deal with is the fact that the prophets of Israel, John the Baptist being the best of them, the prophets were holy men who always did righteous things and always said the right things, were always inspired in everything they did. If you currently hold that view, I recommend that you go home this afternoon and read the book of Jonah. (laughs) Read through... um, you know, lots of sections of scripture. One that comes to mind for me that is really helpful is 2 Samuel 7. This is the scene where, Dan, where David says, you know, I live in this great palace and God lives in a tent. I think he should live in a better place. And Nathan says, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you go do that? But later that night, Nathan gets a vision. And then he comes back to David the next day and says, about that comment. Here's what God told me. So he was speaking from his own perspective at one point, but then he brought David the word of the Lord. Well, that which first sounded like a good idea to to Nathan was later revealed as a bad idea, and therefore a careful study of the passage reveals that Israel's prophets of old were merely human instruments who on some occasions spoke God's word and served as God's mouthpiece. We see this even with a New Testament character like Peter. You know, Peter, though he had been with Jesus throughout his ministry and he witnessed many miracles, he too had moments of weakness and doubt. He denied Jesus at one point. And even after that scene, after the the denials and the restorations by by Jesus that you see in the Gospel of John, Peter, do you love me? Yes. It's this threefold restoration. After that, he still has trouble. Paul has to confront Peter to his face. You see this in the book of Acts. And this is a confrontation because of the way that he was thinking about the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles in the early church. He was not without sin. So the point we need to keep in our minds is this, that prophets and apostles were not inspired in everything that they did and said. They only had, as it were, a kind of limited inspiration. Jesus, on the other hand, always spoke God's word because he was God. He wasn't an ambassador who sometimes was on message and sometimes was not. He was the king himself, the ambassador, the, the great emperor beyond the sea has come to this land. And this is the point, I think, 
of the opening lines of the book of Hebrews, which says, Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us in his son, by his son. And I believe this explains to us how we can find someone like John the Baptist making such bold utterances, bold declarations about Jesus, about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, being Israel's long-expected Messiah. And then within a relatively short time period, we can also find him sending messages to Jesus inquiring whether he really is the one. Well, the second misconception we need to address is this idea that faith is always in of itself a good thing and that by contrast, doubt is always bad. That sounds weird that to say that faith isn't always good and doubt isn't always bad, but if you think about it, faith is just trust and the question is who, in whom are you trusting? In what are you trusting? What are you doubting? There's a great proverb in chapter 14, verse 15. This proverb in Israel's collection of the wise thoughts says, the simple man believes everything, but the wise give thought to their steps. What that's encouraging is discernment. It's actually encouraging doubt. You shouldn't believe everything. You should doubt some things. Take a look around with the ideas that are floating around not just secular American culture, but in Christianity itself. Not every Christian podcast, mine excluded here, not every Christian <laughs> podcast is orthodox. <laughs> not every Christian church you go to are you going to find good teaching. There are, heresy is a thing. So we shouldn't believe every idea or opinion out there just because it has the name Christian on it. We should be discerning. We should really think through what people believe and evaluate it with the scriptures. This is what Paul encouraged when he praised the Bereans for checking to see whether these things are true. All right, so now with these categories in mind, let's take a look at our text this morning from Luke 7. John the Baptist has been imprisoned by Herod. He's behind bars. His disciples visit him, and he, they told him all about all the things that Jesus was doing throughout the region. And after languishing in his prison cell for a while, John was no longer his old self. <laughs> Put yourself in his shoes, or not, because he probably wasn't given shoes in prison. Put yourself there in his cell, and think about what may be going through your mind. You could say that John was having a, a season of depression. He's, he's wondering, what is, what's, the, what, what, what's going to become of me? So rather than responding with joy to all that he was hearing about Jesus, because you know how sometimes rumors get spread, who knows what, what the, what, whether or not what the people are saying is true, he decides to send his disciples to Jesus and ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Of course, as we saw in our text this morning, what did his disciples do when they got there? What did they see him doing? Well, when they arrived, they saw him healing many people of their diseases, giving sight to the blind, and even raising the dead. And according to verses 22 and 23 of Luke 7, after they relayed John's question, Jesus said to John's disciples, Go and tell John what you have seen with your eyes and heard with your ears, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one 
who is not offended by me. Now many scholars will highlight the significance of this passage. The response that Jesus gives to John's disciples it, the, the reason it's significant is the way he ends up alluding to all these Old Testament passages about the coming Messiah. He's alluding to some of the passages, we, one of the Old Testament texts that we saw this morning. He alludes to lots of sections from Isaiah. For example, in verses 17 through 19 of Isaiah 29, we read this. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf, shall hear, <clears throat> the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in, in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. That's what's going to happen in the days of the Messiah. Similarly, in Isaiah chapter 35, we're told that the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped, and when the lame shall leap like... And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We could also think about the words from the text we heard from Isaiah 42, where God promises a deliverer, who, a deliverer who will be a light to the nations. In fact, we're told that this coming servant would open the eyes of the blind and bring out prisoners from the dungeon, the prisoners who sit in darkness. Here's the rub. If you're, if you're John the Baptist... That's the promise you're going to hope for. <laughs> He's going to open the prison doors, and it hasn't happened. This is probably the ancient prophecy that he is just focusing on, and he's wondering, why hasn't he come to deliver me? Why hasn't he rescued me? Are you really the Messiah? It becomes very real in John's prison cell. I certainly would be more and more impatient as the days went on as I waited for the fulfillment of this promise. But the fact that it never was literally fulfilled in John's case is perhaps the biggest reason and explanation for his doubt. Are you the one to come or should we look for another? John is basically saying, look, if you're the promised Messiah, what are you waiting for? Get me out of here. Have you ever had times like that? Have you ever had times like that where you're wondering where is God in the situation where why isn't he doing something? That's John's question. Don't you know that I'm suffering here? Don't you know that I'm regularly subjected to beatings? Don't you know that they want to put my head on a platter? Are you the Messiah or are you not? What's particularly comforting though is that Jesus never actually ends up rebuking John. Think about that for a moment. If blind faith was indeed a virtue, this would have been a great time for Jesus to have talked to John about his lack of faith. Instead, Jesus told him, you know, told John's disciples to report back what they have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached. Jesus isn't just reminding John's disciples what they've seen, but he's using this specific language that connects what they saw to the Old Testament promises. In other words, Jesus' response is primarily resting on two things. Number one, it's resting on the authenticity of eyewitness evidence. The authenticity of eyewitness evidence. John may have had trouble 
believing in general what everybody's saying about Jesus, but these are his closest disciples, the ones visiting him in prison. And they come and report what they just saw. These are trustworthy people. Trustworthy people. This is like, you know how it is with a court of law. You have circumstantial evidence and you have eyewitness testimony. Well, which of the witnesses do you believe? You believe the witness whose testimony is the most credible. These are very credible witnesses. These are John's closest disciples. And they just saw Jesus doing all these things that match the Old Testament promises. And so when he personally, when they personally tell him what they saw, this was extremely credible. And so secondly, as his disciples reported the specific words that Jesus related to John's disciples, John would have clearly picked up on these allusions to the Messianic promises. Therefore, the point is inescapable. Very credible eyewitness test, uh, eyewitnesses have seen with their own eyes the fulfillment of what Isaiah and the other prophets foresaw. The eyewitnesses see what, the, what Isaiah foresaw centuries in advance. In fact, 700 years in advance. This is how Jesus chose to comfort John in the midst of his doubt. He didn't shame John for his lack of faith, but instead gave him reasons to believe. And as it turns out, this is actually the approach we find throughout the scriptures. Even, I mean, even going back to the very beginning of the story. Start at the beginning. You know, the book of Genesis is sort of this big prologue that gets you to the events of Exodus. It's just, this is Israel's history. But it's all written by Moses at the time of the Exodus. And what happens at the very beginning when Moses gets his call? <clears throat> well, in Moses, uh, so in Exodus chapter 4, he's there at the side of the burning bush and he's telling God, look, they're not going to believe me. They won't, they're not going to believe my story. What, was I gonna, what am I going to tell them? I was talking to a bush? This isn't going to go well. And what does God say? I tell you what, Moses. When you speak, your words are going to resonate so deeply. They're going to have a burning in their bosom. And they're just going to know it's true. They're going to feel it deep down inside. It doesn't say anything like that. That's what you would expect him to say if you... Listen to the language most modern Christians are using today. I just recently interviewed close to 100 individuals at various Christian gatherings for my podcast, and that's what typically people say faith is. It's this feeling. It's this deep knowing. But it's, it's all about the subject of the believer, not the object of what we believe. Well, what does God say there in Exodus 4? He says, well, I will give you a sign. And if they don't believe that sign, I'll give you another sign. If they don't believe that sign, I'll give you another sign. By the time you get to Exodus chapter, the end of chapter Exodus 4, Moses tells them about God's liberation, the promise of liberation, and then he gives them the signs. They see the signs and hear his word, and they believe. It's not a leap in the dark. It's based on the signs. Same thing with Exodus 7. God actually says, when Pharaoh says, prove to me, that you are really God's spokesperson. When God, God says, when, Mo, when, er, when Pharaoh asks him for this, well, then you were to give him a sign. You know, it starts with the staff being turned into a snake and then water turning into blood and all the ten plagues and walking through the parted sea. Those small signs grow to this big crescendo. But a lot of people today, when I ask them, 
about can you prove faith. They don't think those two things go together because faith to them is that leap, that section that where there is no evidence. And that is a, not the biblical view of faith. Faith is not a blind leap. It's not jumping over what... It, evidence only takes you so far, and the rest is faith. That is not a biblical view of faith. Faith is trusting in something you have good reasons to believe. <clears throat> something, trusting something you have good reasons to believe. Well, some of you may be saying to yourselves at this point, this is all well and good, but what do you do with that scene in the New Testament and in, in the Gospels in which the, some of the Pharisees say, you know, perform a sign for us, and Jesus says it's an evil generation that seeks after signs. So I think this is an important objection that we should deal with head on. It's from Matthew 16. If you have a Bible, we can look at that real quick. Matthew, verse, Matthew 16, verse 1, uh, in that chapter, we're told that the, these various Pharisees came to Jesus asking for a sign in the heavens. And Jesus said, well, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather. The sky is red, and the, in the morning it will be stormy, for the, the sky is red and threatening. But you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret, interpret the signs of the times. An evil adult and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. So as we think of this passage here from Matthew 16, we should stop to reflect on the fact that Jesus has literally performed hundreds, if not thousands, of signs. He's been doing a lot of miracles throughout the entire region in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And even the great Nicodemus came to him by night saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. But at one point, a group of Pharisees and Sadducees came to him insisting on this particular sign, this do, perform a sign in the heavens, and on this one occasion, Jesus decided not to grant their request. Look at, look at uh, listen to verse 4. Jesus says, it's an, an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign, but no, gen no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. Typically, I think we read that passage as if it's saying the, the generation was evil because it asked for a sign. And I don't think that's what's happening in this passage at all. Jesus first describes the people of his generation as evil and adulterous, which is, by the way, something that most all of the prophets said about their generation, because each generation of Israel was never fully in compliance with the laws of Moses. Psalm 143, do not, do not justify, do not, uh, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. So, Jesus is basically saying here, this generation asks for a sign, yet no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. In other words, Jesus doesn't actually refuse their request. He does give them a sign, just not the one they asked for. Instead, he decided to point to the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the whale three days and came out alive. This is basically Jesus' way of foreshadowing the resurrection, which is the ultimate sign. And this was also something that was there in the Old Testament promises and prophecies. The point I'm making here is this, that Jesus performed many signs, gave many convincing proofs, Acts 1-3, that he was indeed Israel's Messiah. But he was also God incarnate, and on some occasions he sovereignly chose not to perform signs. So, for example, in Mark 
3, sorry, Mark 1, 37, we're told that the disciples were frantically looking for Jesus because they said, everyone's looking for you. Come, quickly, let's go. And Jesus said, let's go to the next village that I may preach there, for this is why I've come. Sometimes you'll see, if you're studying the Gospels closely, Jesus is getting a little impatient with people who are just looking for the signs. You get that sense that sometimes signs and wonders become the main thing instead of the signpost, the thing they're supposed to be. Signposts aren't the main thing. They point you somewhere. When I saw the signpost up, you know, 20 miles back that said Bristol, I didn't say, I've arrived. <laughs> I kept going. Because the signpost that says Bristol isn't Bristol. And so the, the point is, like, I mean, think about the scene in which Jesus is in the boat, right? And he's asleep and lots of stormy, wa stormy weather happens and people start to wonder, are we going to make it through? And they wake Jesus up and he says, peace, be still. And the storm ceases and the, the sea becomes calm. What did the disciples do? Did they say, that was neat. Whoa, do it again. No. They were filled with fear because the sign pointed to something scary. Like, who is this that can calm the sea? It was not a moment to say, oh, show us another sign. Or as some people interpret this text, it's like, you know, Jesus, I have storms in my life, and I'm wondering if you could help with that. That is not the implication of this text. The implication of the text is, who is this who can speak and calm the storm? All right, so with all this being said, now, when you read these accounts like these in the Gospels, on some occasions, sometimes, <laughs> it might be hard for you to believe the story. It's fantastical. It's difficult to believe because you haven't seen someone calm the storm. I haven't seen anybody take 12 loaves of fishes and feed 5,000 people. So sometimes it's hard to believe, and you might have doubts. I've had doubts. I think we should be open about our doubts. And I think when you doubt, when you ask the questions about the text, then you're confronted again with the answers that, that are provided. I don't know what it would look like to have 12 loaves multiply into you know, 5,000. It's hard for me to even imagine. But something is harder to imagine, and that is how could a guy who claims to be God have become famous everywhere without performing any miracles? That's, that's even harder to believe. And how could these ancient, Israel text, ancient Israelite texts say over and over and over again that all the nations will stream to Zion? The kings around the world will shut their mouths because of him. How how can you have a text like Isaiah 53, which looks like a chapter out of Matthew's gospel, written 700 years in advance? How can that be not God's word? So when you, when you find yourself having moments of doubt, recall to your minds this scene here from Luke 7, where John the Baptist is lying there in his prison cell. You know, earlier he had spoken with such confidence. You may have been confident someday, but this moment today you're having this season of doubt. Remember John. He's laying in his prison cell. He previously said, Behold the Lord, who's, behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Yes, he's hearing all kinds of things about Jesus, but he wants to know, are you really the one? 
are you really the one? When his own disciples came and reported what they saw and heard Jesus doing, and when they told him what Jesus said, the point ended up becoming inescapable. There seemed to be a match between what John and what his, his own disciples saw with their eyes and that which had been predicted by Isaiah. Yes, I'm maybe, maybe the opening of the prison doors will be resolved later, but this part seems to be fulfilled. There was a match between the eyewitness seeing and the ancient prophet, prophetic foreseeing, that which was written in the scriptures. So let me ask you, have you ever thought about faith in this way? Have you ever thought about the difference between the Christian faith and every other religion out there in the marketplace of ideas? Most religious ideologies and self-help programs end up saying things like, try it, you'll like it. it. It'll work for you. It'll give you your best life now or come work together with this worldview. It'll create our best world now. Either way, it's just about us. But this particular faith isn't really about like something you apply. It's good news, not good rules or good advice. Good news, news, gospel. Think about that. We are to believe these things because they really happened. Christianity is really the only one that has that, that kind of a, of a strong emphasis on history and the actual fulfillment, factual basis. Jesus, if Jesus never really lived, died, and rose again from the dead, then no one should be a Christian. If the factual claims recorded by the witnesses really did occur, though, everyone should be a Christian. So it's not ultimately about our faith, it's about the object of our faith. Are we really believing in something that's true or not? This is, what, this is how 1 Corinthians 15 reads. Paul describes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as seen by over 500 living witnesses and foreseen by the scriptures, foreseen by the writers of the scriptures. He mentions that twice. All this, he says, is the thing of first importance. First importance. The very heart of the Christian truth claim is a set of factual claims, which we call good news. It's the report of something that happened that changed the world, not merely something that changes us and gives us warm, fuzzy feelings. It might give you warm, fuzzy feelings on one day and confidence, but then another day you might have doubts. You may fluctuate in your faith and in your feelings, but the truth remains truth. And it's not worthy of your belief if it's not true. So it's not wrong to ask whether it's true and to check the foundation. The gospel is a report of an event that either did or did not happen. And if it didn't happen, our faith is meaningless, Paul says. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another, says John. Think about that for a moment. Are you really the one to come? Is there anything wrong with that question? Is there anything impious about that question? Granted, it's somewhat surprising that it comes from John the Baptist, particularly in the light of his previous, previously bold sermons about Jesus. But John here is just looking for evidence to regain his former confidence that Jesus really is the promised Messiah. There's a big difference between doubt, which causes questions, and unbelief, which causes statements. 
here's the way it is. This is why it's not true. That's not, that's a different thing than asking questions. Doubt is not unbelief. Notice all the things Jesus doesn't say to John. He doesn't say, my, how the mighty have fallen. He doesn't say, listen here, John, you know better than to ask a question like that around here. Jesus doesn't say, John, you know what your problem is? You just don't have faith. You're just trying to reason through everything with your mind. You're overthinking this. You're, you're too cognitive. Faith isn't cognitive, John. This is language I've heard from Christians. All this. Faith isn't cognitive. It's a blind leap. It's just something you know deep down inside, something you feel. Just take the leap, John. You probably have heard people say these kinds of things. Instead, Jesus ended up furnishing John with proof that vindicated and confirmed Jesus' identity as Israel's promised Messiah. He didn't turn him inward, but outward to the events seen and heard by his closest, most reliable disciples. And the way those particular words, what his disciples saw, matched the prophetic promises. This is how Jesus comforted John in his moment of doubt. There's one more thing before I wrap up that I'd like to call your attention to. In verse 23 of, John, of Luke chapter 7, Jesus does perhaps give John a little gentle criticism. He says, go tell John what you've seen and heard in verse 22. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. Good news preached to them. Verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This, it could be argued, was John's greatest problem because he was, in fact, offended by Jesus. The focus of, at the beginning of this service was you are not your own, and that's John's problem here. He wanted to be his own. He wanted to order his own providence. He wanted his best life now. And he wasn't being released from prison. <laughs> John perhaps was offended by the fact that Jesus had sovereignly decided not to intervene in order to rescue him from prison. And John believed that when the Messiah came, he was supposed to open all the prison doors and release those from the dungeons. Now, perhaps this was just a metaphor for the imprisonment of sin or perhaps we could also point out the fact that there were some occasions, as recorded throughout the book of Acts, where prison doors were opened. But whatever the case, in John's case, for whatever reason, Jesus sovereignly decided not to release the prisoner there. And John was left in prison. And later his head was, in fact, delivered up on a platter. And so the point Jesus seems to be making in verse 23 is that no one can, in fact, order up their own providence. Sometimes God calls us to suffer even when we haven't done anything wrong. Here in verse 23, Jesus seems to be telling John that providence is Jesus' business and blessed are those who are not offended by his sovereignty. This is an important point because I think Sometimes you'll meet people who have abandoned their faith 
because when you talk to them, you know, first they'll start throwing out a lot of objections. You, you, they'll say, uh, I don't really believe the Bible is true. I think it's kind of a myth. You know, uh, it's been changed over the years. It's evolved. And no matter how patient you are in trying to address each and every one of these little criticisms or, or reasons for not believing, they just keep moving to another excuse. And when you explore, in some cases, when you explore what's at the root of this, you find out that the problem boils down to the fact that the person you're talking with has actually been greatly disappointed by God in some way. Something happened. Something that was disturbing. And God didn't answer that particular issue. And now as a result of that crisis, this person simply prefers to wish him out of existence. So you can't really reason with that person. You should still try to reason with this person, but sometimes there's something deeper going on, is my point. So this was perhaps the frame of mind that Jesus was attempting to rescue John from. As with all of his followers, and as with you and me, Jesus sometimes calls us to periods of suffering and even persecution. So the question is whether you believe in Je- is not whether you believe in Jesus, but whether or not you believe in either the revealed God or the God of your making. The God of your own making who always wants you to be comfortable. You know, This is the, the, the temptation for us modern Westerners. Do we believe in the God, that we, the idol that we've created who always wants to give us our best life now? It is not just a temptation for the Joel Osteen people. It's not. But if you follow the ancient promises... All those promises recorded throughout the scriptures, beginning with the promise given to Abraham, in whom all the world, the seed in whom all the world would ultimately be blessed. And then this promise to David, who's, who would have a son whose kingdom would never end. Or that great promise that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 53, about this suffering servant who would be despised and rejected and slaughtered himself like a lamb for the sins of his people. And when you discover that the most reliable and trustworthy eyewitnesses ever known in the ancient world announced the fulfillment of all these promises because they saw it with their own eyes. That which we've seen with our eyes, which we've touched with our hands, this we proclaim to you, John says in his first epistle. Not seen in a vision. This is real, tangible, concrete This then becomes the anchor of our faith. It's not a leap in the dark. We can have confidence about this because these things are certain and true. They're true whether we believe it or not. In fact, it's the language, all this is the language that Luke uses to open up his very gospel in the very prologue. He talks about, he marshals all the evidence from all the eyewitnesses in order to give Theophilus, certainty of the things he has recorded. Therefore, in light of all this, let us not worship the God of comfort and venerate him as God, but let us rather turn to Jesus as the sovereign Lord of history who has revealed himself in hints and promises and prophecies and then by what was seen and recorded by the eyewitnesses. Let us serve him faithfully wherever he leads us. May God give us the strength to do that. Do you have doubts? Do you sometimes question your faith? Don't let them fester. 
Get them out in the open. Share them with one another. Discuss them with family members, pastors, and elders. There is nothing at all impious about asking difficult questions. In fact, people who are confident in their faith love the opportunity to go and re-review uh, re the solid foundations of the faith. It's just another opportunity to bask in the great promises of Scripture and the fulfillment thereof. But alternatively, when we are called sometimes to answer objections from friends, neighbors, family, whenever we are called to assist those who are wrestling with doubts, we should always remember Peter's instruction, who in his epistle says famously, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that is within us. But remember the last part of that. But do this with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Merciful Father, give us the grace this day to believe what you have declared to us here from your word in Luke 7. Help us that we may persevere in your faith until we draw our last breath, no matter what path we are led on. For those with doubts, grant that they may find answers to the end that their faith may be strengthened. Transform us by your spirit more and more, that we may love and serve you as we ought, and that we may offer love to one another, even as you have loved us. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.